I'm Chris Riley, editor of Sweet Code and founder of Fixate. I just so happen to like food and software, so I'm going to connect with developers and engineers at their favorite places to eat and chat about what it's like to build modern applications. This is Developers Eating the World. So this is episode seven of Developers Eating the World, and we're at Avery Brewery in Boulder, which I kind of picked, I guess, Zach. Yeah. I told you we were going here. <laughs> so I'm gonna brag about Avery first, because Avery is close to Celestial Seasonings. So you can go and get your hippie tea, then come here, get buzzed, and they have awesome food. Um, we already ordered some, but I haven't ordered my main dish. Everything here is amazing. Oh yeah. Can't go wrong with it. And the service is amazing. I don't I don't understand. Like they, they need to train other restaurants on how to do their shit. Um, so anyways, it's kinda noisy. This is gonna be an editing challenge, but I think it'll be well worth it. Because Mr. Zach, I would coin you as one of those rock star hoodie wearing developers, but you don't have the hoodie today. No, you I just have the Mario shirt. Just got the Mario shirt, beard, and the beard. I shaved the neck beard off though, so I think we're good there. And what are you doing these days? Um, so uh, lately I have been uh, working at a Boulder-based startup called uh, Automox. They're an automated patch management solution. So um, the way that I like to, to point, to, to, to describe it is the, the Equifax hack was one of the biggest, most devastating ones in the world. It happened because they didn't keep their software up to date. They missed a patch. Um, and Automox automates that process. It takes the human element out of it and allows you to identify which systems are vulnerable, which ones aren't, automatically apply patches, update software, and, and protect yourself against um, those types of attacks. And, and what is your responsibility there? So I'm uh, a principal engineer at Automox. So my general area of expertise and focus is the web development, web app side, um, API, design and development. Um, I really tend to focus more on the uh, partnership side, the enterprise side. So as we build up those um, partnerships with, with third parties and, and you know, build up our integration, build up our tool set, um, that's, that's generally what I tend to focus on. So Zach has been a contributor of Fixate from the early days. Um, he's taking a pause, but he got because he got all excited with his new gig and super really super involved with that. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the stack that you guys are developing with? And so our primary stack right now, at least from um, the, the software development standpoint, is um, PHP and oh, really? Golang. So PHP is what comprises our, our API, REST API, the backend of our website. Okay. Um, but uh, our uh, distributed agents that, that uh, customers install on their systems, those are built in Go. And huh. then um, we have a handful of microservices that are being built in Go. So Go is starting to kind of become the language of choice because the performance and uh, um, the, the resource allocation is significantly better in that language so than it is in So your agents are written in Go? They are. Huh. Uh, we're we're uh, I'm not I'm not in marketing, so I could probably be totally lying about this. But um, we're one of the only cross-platform patch management solutions available. So there are a lot of really great solutions out there, but they're really focused on on one um, operating system. So a lot of great uh, Microsoft Windows solutions, um, huh. a lot of great solutions for obviously Linux and Mac. They're really very targeted to those OSs. Uh, one of the advantages that we got out of Go is the cross-compilation, so that way the Go agent can be built in 
we can we can write the code is once it, and distribute it binaries for any operation. So is that system. like Node and Electron? Not really. Um, so it goes a compiled language. It's oh yeah. Um, so now I'm gonna I'm not a Go developer, so I'll be pulling most of this uh, out of thin air. But it's it, it it's a compiled language that you can. Um, you can compile binaries uh, for cross-platform, hmm. um, different operating systems. So there are a couple things we don't support right now, like we don't support uh, like Raspberry Pi, because we, but not because not for any technical limitations, just because the need is not there. But being able to uh, to, to compile our agent for the the Pi or for I think it's R um, is pretty low lift. I could see a world of IoT being in. Well, I guess patch management. Those are pretty hardened devices, so I guess you don't really. They're actually the opposite. Why? It's something like 80%. I could be pulling that percentage out of nowhere too, but um, the vast majority of IoT devices don't have uh, very stringent security protocols. There is no patching solution available for them. You imagine a zero-day hack on a. There have been a lot of them. I mean, there's. There's a, a pretty strong history of these devices not having great security protocols, and you hear about botnets that are taking advantage right. of different IoT solutions. And it's because they have basic basic password management, or they're using old protocols, and uh, the, the patching solution doesn't really exist for them. And part of that reason is um, there's no there's no package manager. You know, they right. they in a way are very um, kind of isolated or targeted right. devices, whereas uh, patching Windows or patching right. Linux or, or Mac, they all have their package managers. So we can hook onto those package managers and use that to enforce those patches to be applied. And we pull it down from the trusted source where the patches come from. Right. And access, well, I guess that comes down to accessibility too. Like you don't have readily accessible IoT devices. I mean, you have communication with them, but yeah. you don't have like system level. Yeah, it's. It would definitely be a, an interesting avenue for us to pursue right now, or not right now, but eventually. Because it would have to be all over the air updates. Yeah, that would be really, that's interesting. Yeah, every device would have to have its own targeted ecosystem. And if it's not in the package management context, then every individual uh, update path we, we have to manage by hand and verify. So if we want to patch Chrome, we are managing that on our side, so we have to manage what that upgrade path is. We have to make sure that the binary being distributed is, is safe and all that stuff, as opposed to relying on, say, apps um, right. or Ubuntu or something. What? So what, are, what do you think is some of the most exciting stuff in the dev space right now? You've been on PHP for a long time. I've been on PHP for a really long time. Um, it's kind of the, the niche I've, I mean, it's not much of a niche, but it's, it's kind of the niche I found myself in, my, uh, the, the language that clicked with me early on in my career, so it's the one I just kind of yeah. leaned into. Um, I don't know, it's, it's tough. I mean, obviously containerization and, and, and the orchestration that comes out of that is super interesting in the dev space, it still is. Um, but you hear about you know, serverless is one of the things that people won't, won't stop talking about. about. We're no. <laughs> um, we've 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 tossed it around, but uh, from what I understand, one of the main advantages of serverless, or you get the benefits out of serverless for really short-lived, cheap processes, and you get a lot of them. Um, and a lot of the work that we do, there's a lot of data analysis, a lot of stuff that doesn't really lend itself well to uh, a serverless architecture. That makes sense. 
So one of the times we were talking, I, I forget when, when I first moved here. Um, well, you know the whole shift left concept, right? And we were talking and kind of talking a little bit about shadow dev, where you, like your, you and your team had a really good idea of the right tooling for the job, and then you had to sell it internally or not. <laughs> That's true. That's generally that how we do things right now too. You know, we we have an architectural review committee, and you know, oh, you do. We do, and well, that sounds like a lot of work. It it is. It's it's still young, still fresh. So we're trying to find the right process that works for for us rather than you know trying to keep it too formal. Um, but uh, you know, that's one of the challenges with with recruiting in particular, and with uh, getting people inspired to do their job. You know, you got to find that balance between uh, a technology stack that the company can get behind. Another language that I mentioned that we do is, is Java as well, but that's isolated from my area of expertise, so I couldn't speak too much of it. But um, you know, you want to have some kind of isolated set or some some relatively limited set of technology stacks that you can rely on uh, on maintaining or, or growing with. So PHP, Go, Java are kind of our three staples, and We've, we've kind of vetted those and what we need them to do and the solutions that they're uh, going to provide to us. But um, that doesn't mean that something like Crystal or Elixir or, or another language that uh, makes sense won't be a good solution for a future project. But we can't just accept everything because then everybody will be driving in their own lane. There will be no stoplights. People will just, it'll be chaos all the time because when every developer does their own thing and there's not some kind of cohesion around it, then it makes makes recruiting and hiring very hard because nobody has to learn anything else so people can come on, do their own thing, and, and you hope that they find a project that they like or or you, you kind of just have to let them go. Um, but it also makes maintenance internally really hard. So if, you know, if there's one person that's, uh, say, an Elixir dev and... Know, they, they they are working down an Elixir project, which may very well be the, the right solution for that project. If we can't have at least one other engineer on the team working down that project with them, then that's how you create those knowledge silos and, and um, you create bottlenecks in the system and in the, the, the process. So if, if John's our Elixir dev and he goes on vacation, then that project can't be touched until he gets back. My Zach is growing up. It's, it's a balance. <laughs> <laughs> you have to picture Zach like... I don't know. Seven years ago, would just run with whatever made sense and just break through it. And now, got processes and yeah. I mean, scalability, extensibility. That. But the hiring side, it's true. I mean, getting a job as a developer. Everybody says the job market's so amazing right now, but getting a job as a dev is not easy. It's not. And we have, um, we've been really lucky with uh, our candidate pool that we've hired some of the best engineers I've ever worked with in my life. All in the Boulder area? All uh, local? In kind of Denver, Boulder area. Okay. Um, and, you know, already Automox is it's only it's a 50 person people in the Denver and the Boulder office. It's already the biggest company I've ever worked for. You know I mean? I've been startup small startup yep. guy my whole career, so it's been an interesting transition to go from um, working with a dev team of like three people at most for the past decade to 
uh, you know, being a principal engineer on a dev team with, I think we're at like 20, 25 people. So yeah, it's a it's a big shift, it's and it big, sounds like you appreciate change. that change, though. I do. It's nice. It's it's nice not to, to to be you know one of the only people on a small team that kind of has to tackle that mountain of code debt and mountain of backlog. You know, we can distribute things appropriately. We can assign tasks to the team or or the person that's uh, most appropriate to solve it. Nine times out of ten, it's somebody that's not me. I gotta you know kind of keep the wheels on the bus and make sure that architectural decisions move forward in a cohesive and consistent way. But um, it's it's been great to be able to work with people who are much better engineers than me. I've been able to learn a lot from it. Yeah. How do you guys hire? So we have a unique hiring process. Um, one that I haven't seen anywhere else. Uh, and I've interviewed at a lot of places. And I've almost never appreciated the interview process at most places. Right. Um, so, you know, like, like a lot of companies, especially the bigger companies, it, it usually ends up being kind of a whole day affair where we'll bring the candidate on site. And, um, it starts with a candidate presentation. So we'll get a group of people in a room and the candidate gets to present to that set of people, whoever whoever gets selected for the day, whoever's most appropriate. Um, they present something that they're passionate about from, from a technical It could be anything, it has to be anything. tech. We've had people uh, present on a, um, a conference badge system that they built and huh. how they designed and architected it and they brought their hardware in to show it. We've had people come in and presents on open source project that they you know started on you know as a small contributor and became a, a, a large maintainer of it um, um, but there's really it's you know everybody everybody that's in those looks for something different usually when I'm a, a part of the presentation uh, the only thing that I look for is preparation it's it's kind of like that first um, it's like that first impression that you're giving a company that that you're interviewing for and you know, we're not there to say that your project is dumb or that you've made bad choices. We're there to just kind of learn about what you find interesting and something that you're passionate yeah. about. Yeah, well, because techies aren't generally the best presenters. Exactly, and I, I don't, most of us, actually, I think everybody at this point, we've got the process down that so nobody that's really the cares. So soft if, skills yeah, thing. Yeah, it's, it's soft skills in the sense that they come, come prepared. Like, but it matters. It does. I mean, know? if you want to differentiate, like, that's why most of our contributors write for Fixate. True. And a lot of these people come in and, you know, we have people that are not public speakers. I am not a public speaker. I have to stand in front of the team and give a presentation and my voice is going to shake like anybody else's. But, um, you know, we have these people come in and they may be nervous, but did they prepare? Did they put together a presentation? Is it something they're interested about? And usually once you get them past the, the presentation part and into the, the passion of why they chose what they chose, the nerves kind of go away and you can really see what they're passionate yeah. about. So it's like an hour, the first hour of the day. And then we move them on to a, uh, this is generally for engineers, process can vary if it's like an SDET or a QE or, or a support engineer or something, but a software developer. Um, we'll start with the presentation, then they'll move on to a uh, systems design interview okay. where we'll, we'll quiz them about a project. Um, like, how would you design this system? And the way we approach it is we, we make an effort to make everything very collaborative rather than I know the answer and you don't. And prove it to me, I find my way. Um, we have so many candidates come in and they'll solve a problem in a way that we haven't thought of and it's a perfectly valid way to do it and it's really interesting because it allows us to constantly like rethink the way that we get to these solutions. Um, after the candidate presentation and then the systems design interview, they go on to a culture lunch and... Culture lunch? It's culture lunch. We just That sounds awful. We take them out to lunch, we get beers, it's 
couple, couple right. people and we just get to know them. So There's Zach, no technical questions. <laughs> Zach worked for a company once and I won't mention their name. Yeah. And part of the issue, so how do you feel about the culture lunch? Part of the issue is culture. Well, you know how I feel about culture. You know how I feel about company values where they just plaster a bunch of words on the wall and culture is a thing like it's there no matter what our approach to culture is is not in are you like us which is generally what a lot of companies do if if you're not the same then you don't fit their culture our approach to culture is more about uh, it's more about a mindset and for example like a lot of companies look to see you know it's they police language or they'll police um, you know your your interests so the, you know you're you're allowed to be unique but within a confined right. set of constraints there's a box there's a box you know we care more about um, you know that passion that comes through that a lot of people have and you know I know there's some controversy in uh, the, the engineering world about um, you don't have to be passionate about being a developer in order to be a developer and I think that that's true to a degree um, you don't have to go home and code in order to be a good coder. Oh wow, I don't think I've interviewed anybody who wasn't like it's, just it's, totally passionate about it's it. It's really rare to find that. There are a lot of engineers that they go home and they may be a brewmaster or they may be into hiking or you know, they, that, that may not be their, their sole purpose and that's, that's fine and that's something that we really like to see. Like we don't necessarily care so much about um, if they eat, sleep and breathe code. tech. We care that they're passionate about something and they can share that with us and they can come to work and they want to be a part of you know the the growing community that we're building within our company you know it's not just about uh, you come in you do your job you clock out at five you know we people work together when they are cohesive when they can collaborate very well when they you know can develop that shared language between them in order to be more effective and that comes from getting to know somebody it comes from building tight relationships and tight bonds so the cultural lunch is really it's not about seeing like, do they check the boxes? Uh, it's it's really more about seeing, you know, is this a person that we but can I guess work the with? Problem do we is... like how they approach problem solving or conflict resolution? You know, is this somebody who's humble but they're they're still a good communicator? And everybody communicates one on one differently right. in a group. So this is it's an important way to see like how people are. And we hire a lot of people that, you know, they you could it at a glance or at a distance, their personality types don't necessarily match with the majority of the people who are on the team. But that's okay, because it doesn't cause conflict as long as there's kind of this, this, uh... Was it about respect then? Yeah, there's like a mutual respect. There's, the way that we approach um, problem solving too is, one of the first things that struck me about the culture at Automox when I started was, you know, I, it's always hard being the new guy. You hear a problem that somebody's having and you want to try to help them or offer a solution, but you don't want to overstep your bounds and offer a solution when you don't necessarily understand the whole scope yet. Right. So it's that fine line that you have to walk, that balance. And um, We really encourage people to share their solutions or to, to, to approach a problem from whatever angle, regardless of what their expertise or their history is. Because we understand that everybody has a different background, and those backgrounds can lead to really unique solutions that we may not be thinking of even though it may may not be a background that falls right in line with the, the problem set. Um, after the culture lunch, it moves on to a collaborative programming session. Okay, team coding? Kind of like team coding. It's not pair programming. We want to be 
fairly uh, explicit about that because you know pair program brings a lot of things in people's mind. Usually means you got the navigator and the driver and, and all that stuff, and that's not really what it's for. It's we get we get two engineers in a room, or we get the engineer an engineer and the candidate. So it ends up with being two engineers in a room. We throw a problem at them that neither person has seen before. Even the in-house one. Yep. Nice. And that way they work together to solve the problem. You know the the usually the candidate will will hook up a laptop or hook their laptop up to the, the the projector screen or the presentation so you know we can kind of follow along more more clearly. But the whole purpose of that is to see how well we work together from a technical standpoint. You know? So how do you pick the internal engineer? Like who's the hiring manager in that situation? Um, a lot of times it's me. Nice. As the engineer, that's that's the the process that I've um, then who contributed the to the most. Interestingly enough, so I'm not going to say what the problem is. We have a we have a problem that we'll evaluate for multiple candidates, but everybody has a different background. So we encourage the candidate to use their tech stack, their language. So in my case, I haven't yet seen a candidate who uses a language that I know, which means that. I can help solve the problem from a theoretical standpoint, but in terms of actually doing the work, I have no idea how to do it either. So it's always a learning process for me. It could be in C, or they could be doing it in Java, or it could be doing it in Python. People would pick a different language and a different stack, and it's always really interesting to see how they approach it in their language and their with their best foot forward. Now, how do you set up the dev environment for that? Do they have to bring the environment too? Because you can waste a lot of time setting that up. Yeah. So. We've taken a couple different passes at it. Um, we encourage the candidates to bring their own machines okay. because they're more comfortable on their machines. You know what I mean? Everybody's got all their keyboard shortcuts perfectly, so we don't. We, we want them to be comfortable. And generally speaking, if they're doing a presentation, they'll bring a machine with their their slide deck or whatever on it anyway. Yeah. Um, so they they often have it. And if they don't bring a machine, which is fine, then we'll we have a, a you know burner laptop that we'll bring out. And, we have all the different IDEs available that they can choose to use, and you know we 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 try to accommodate them as best as possible. Huh? Um, That's interesting. Yeah, the the, the thing that it I actually love about sounds it, kind of intimidating. It sounds like it. I'd rather do the presentation <laughs> more than anything else. It sounds like it, but once you get into it, and a lot of people come in and they're really apprehensive, like what are what are we going to do for the next two hours? And you know we solve a problem that's been solved. You know, it'll be uh, uh, implement some protocol or server or something like that from scratch. Like, we we take the approach of uh, a good problem to solve is one that you know the the input and output of. We don't necessarily know how it's built. So, like, in, that's say, interesting. Yeah. So, say you had to build an SSH server. Like, you know what's supposed to go in, and you know what's supposed to come out generally, but you don't know the black box inside of it. So it's a really good problem because it takes away the design phase, and you can really focus on implementation and just see like what's their thought process, you know. So, um, yeah, that sounds super intimidating to me, but also really fun. I mean, no matter what, you're going to come out of this exercise learning something. I learned so much personally, just from an engineering standpoint. I, you know, we get these people that come in and they have way more impressive backgrounds than I do. And they approach these problems in such different ways. You know, a lot yeah. of people take it from a test-driven development perspective. They will write the tests of, you know, what the I/O. They know what the output's supposed to be, so they will test for it. Then they'll write the application. What's and we have people approach it from the shotgun approach style, where they're like, well, I, I know that these pieces will need to happen, so let's build them, and then we'll we'll get through because we have limited time. So it's interesting to see right. the way people approach. Yeah, the you have a time window. And 
and generally I don't I don't care like personally I don't care if they do TDD I don't care if they just want to start hitting code immediately and, and see where they get because they're all really valid solutions yeah. you know it really comes down to how well did we work together you know, do they communicate is that something that like could I, could I sit down in a room right. with a hard problem with them later on which and, is also and a knock this thing. out yeah and it, it doesn't matter what, what their tech stack is or what their preferred editor is or any of that stuff. You know, it doesn't matter even if we get to the solution. A lot of candidates don't get to the Are end. Are you still and Zach? That's fine. <laughs> this does not sound like the Zach I used to know. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting about that whole know the input, know the output. Not the black box in the middle. When I was in college doing genetic algorithms and we had to write fitness functions, that's all fitness functions were about. Like, you knew what you wanted to try to figure out, you knew what you were going to give it, but you didn't know what the algorithm was going to be to interpret it. Uh, it's a cool way to break down a problem. It is, and you know, we, we're really deliberate about every step in the hiring process. You know, we, everybody that's in the different sessions, they all are looking for a specific thing, and, and we're good about trusting the evaluation of the other team members. So if somebody's in the yeah, the well, pair program or the collaborative program, what the that person says is is trusted. So we don't go into the culture lunch and start evaluating their technical expertise because that's not what it's for. It almost sounds like know. you guys have acknowledged the fact that the way like both, you know, the person interviewing for the job is is kind of at a disadvantage, but in reality, you're both interviewing each other. Absolutely. Like you, you don't want to go into a job that you're going to hate in two months, and that doesn't benefit the employer either. No, I think it's not. rare for organizations to understand that. Yeah, that's that's one of the the, the my favorite pieces of feedback from especially the collaborative programming exercise. Uh, you know, we expanded to not just me, so we got a couple other engineers that'll do them now as well. But that's cool. Um, one of the the coolest pieces of feedback we'll get from people who we've made an offer to and they've accepted is that was the exercise that you know really gave them a good feeling about Automox as a company. They got to see how they would work with us. So it was a great kind of metric for them as well to determine whether or not it was a good fit. That's cool. And, and you know those the people that have you know it's a relatively new process. We've only been doing it for about six to eight months, eight months maybe, um, maybe a little longer, and. You know, the people that have come through that process, they hit the ground running. You know, the newer engineers, newer hires, they right. hit the ground running. Well, we I bet they have more enthusiasm, too. Absolutely. Because you also don't know, I mean, let's be honest, like, you don't know where somebody's come from prior to getting a new gig. Like, you don't know if they were laid off and really upset about the job they lost. You don't know if they've been waiting a year to get a job. I mean, I've, I've taken jobs where I just had to take a job. That's not fun. Absolutely. <laughs> like you're gonna pretty much accept whatever you want to get. So I've been there too. It sucks. No, that's really cool. And you've been there for over a year now. Is that uh, right? Yeah, just over a year. Yeah, because um, it was right around the time we moved. Yeah, April second last year is when I started. And I so. know Zach likes his job because he went into like hibernation mode from <laughs> writing him, where he wrote a ton, and now kind of, which is fine. It's great. Yeah, it's, things have been busy. It's been really busy lately. We've been hiring like crazy. We closed on our Series A back in, I think, uh, November. Nice. Um, and it's been... 50 people only Series A? 
it was a lot less than 50 when we when we closed our A. So we've been hiring a lot. Oh wow, um, a lot okay. of catching up to do. How much of your time do you spend on recruiting, uh, or interviewing? It started to slow down. We we front filled most of our uh, most of our job recs to the the first first quarter of the year. Um, but during that time, I was probably spending a full two to three days a week on interviewing oh, and, and, and doing all that stuff. But um, part of that was because I was so heavily involved in the, the collaborative programming exercise and developing and defining that process that uh, you know it was, was kind of unavoidable. Um, we tried to keep as many people isolated from it as possible or, or limit the impacts, but there were a few of us that were, were much more involved. Right. All right, so what pisses you off about the dev world right now? Like, what do you what do you see vendors doing that you're just like, effing stop it? I don't know. That's wait. This is a question I thought I could ask you. And you'd be and like, I would oh, have a great that? a great answer. <laughs> it's it's so hard. Um, one of the things that always really frustrates me uh, in the dev world is, and things have been getting better, but that that mindset that uh, engineers don't deserve UX. Okay. So, API design, um, security, you know, I'm the security company now, security's front of brain, and there are two things that companies do really poorly, I think, in a lot of ways. They, they put a lot of investment in their user interface and the user experience for their, the front end of their client, but then you look at their API and it's not necessarily easy to navigate. Yeah. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit, yes. you know, ours isn't perfect either. But I have a hand in, in improving that now, and it's right. it's a big initiative that I have oh, going forward to really improve right. the UX there because, you know, developers are users too, and just because they're using a product without a front-end graphical user interface does not mean that they don't deserve thought to it. They don't deserve some 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 usability, some some concern. And uh, and uh, being an experienced developer, you can. Like, how long does it really take you to get a sense of, you know, if something, what's crazy about being a dev is like, you can look at somebody else's product, just the product, oh, yeah. and have a really good sense about how good the developers are on the back end. Like, there's a, few, there's a few apps lately that I'm like, man, you guys need to hire a whole new dev team because this is shit. But, I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't take you long, right? No, it, 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 it doesn't, but it's it's also kind of interesting. A lot of companies can have really great developers in the back end, but uh, the business doesn't prioritize things like burning down code debt and, um, you know, putting effort into, you know, putting UX effort into their public API uh, or documentation, for example, or making document, you know, which is why Fixate does for Fixate. <laughs> um, does documentation projects because yeah. I've never really heard it of a there's a few out there, There's like Twilio, Twilio's Hashi. got great documentation. Yep. Um, yeah. Stripe is probably the example uh, yep, that a lot of yep. people use. I think I got that from you, but yeah. Yeah, Stripe's documentation is, is one of the best. Um, I'll actually be speaking on that later this year, and I think Stripe is one of the examples. Nice. Yeah, yeah, we, you know, we, at some point last year, you know, we hired a, a technical writer full-time mm -hmm. in order to to actually put the appropriate level of focus and effort and emphasis on our documentation. And you know, while there's still some ways, uh, a way to go for us to improve kind of the UX of our API and, and make sure that that's set up in a way that's easily usable and understandable and parsable. 
um, our documentation has come a really long way to kind of reduce a lot of that ambiguity and make sure that it's a lot clearer. And what do these endpoints do? And Got it. How do they work? Um, would you call that developer empathy? This is a new term and it's used quite heavily in the DevRel space and I'm not a big fan of it, but it kind of encompasses, like it's almost more developer respect. Like yeah. treat me like an end user. Kinda, it, and you do see a lot of you know, companies not treating the developers like the end users. Yeah. You know, they build things that are for the you know, executive team, the reports, the people who are gonna be doing the buying, but they're not necessarily gonna be doing the using. Um, and I guess you could call it developer empathy. I mean, it really comes down to DevRel. It's all the developer relations or developer advocacy. Like those, those teams are important. And the companies that establish them, they're and important, identify but they their never value. get budget. They never get true. any sort of latitude. True and not true. Smaller companies can't afford them, so yeah. of course they don't well, get budget. No, that's true. Uh, larger companies, some do really focus. Like Microsoft has part on one of the best DevRel teams. Yeah, but you can't compare it. Like you can't. It's nuts. They're, what they're doing these Microsoft's days. Microsoft's yeah. is, can't compare. it's the goal. Like if you're gonna set one up, they, they do an excellent job to hire incredibly qualified engineers yeah. who are really great with working with the end users, identifying ways to improve stuff. That's where it becomes really intimidating for a brand new developer because it's like, oh, now you're telling me like all the num all the things I need to understand that are not related to just building code is pretty phenomenal. Oh yeah. and. I think I have a problem with the phrase soft skills because it implies they're I don't not like important. It, either. <laughs> it, it implies that they're not difficult. You know what I mean? Like you got the hard skills, you can write code and you know, nobody wants to work with an asshole though. So you could be the greatest engineer in the world, but if you but that, are that soft skill is a deal you, breaker. Yeah, if you are not pleasant to work with, we won't hire don't you. Be I soft, would rather be hire hard. Yeah, I would rather hire a subpar engineer who is very easy to work with, who we're able to still be able to get stuff done, collaborate, and, and grow his career and, and help him or her, I should say, learn. And, and, and I would rather that than somebody who comes in who thinks their shit doesn't stink. And, and that may be true, but you can't work with them because they can never be wrong. And you can't collaborate with them because they steamroll every conversation. Yeah. You know, it really is about collaboration. And, and a lot of people don't acknowledge the fact that, that engineering is about communication. You know, you can't, we can't do our jobs if we can't communicate effectively. Yeah, I was just at uh, ChefConf, um, and that was interesting. I mean, it was fun, still kind of grappling with where infrastructure as code fits in the modern, modern dev world. So Adam, the co-founder of Chef, was really pushing this whole idea of like, you know, we need to stop trying to prevent people from being successful just because we need to, like, historically, techies would kind of, and maybe this is true in every field, I don't know, but you kind of draw a wall because you only wanted people to get successful up to a point and not beyond that point because the fear was then they take your job, like, they inhibit your ability to grow. And I think that organizations who have, like, gotten comfort with the fact, like, actually making people successful makes me more successful. I, it's really exciting to see that that's actually kind of a movement that people are like, you know, I'm spending way too much energy, and I can point to a company that we dealt with last year who definitely had this mindset. I'm, I'm spending way too much energy trying to block people out and prevent their growth, and I should just kind of just let it happen. Yeah. 
that's you know it's interesting and it's 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 true i think any good engineering organization should have some sort of mindset towards um towards mentorship and, and career growth you know i i i often point at um one of our directors of engineering who uh he will never walk past a teachable moment you know i i, I very much look up to him in the way that he he uh, approaches um you know engineering as a practice he he's our head of uh, sre so for for quite a while okay. he was the guy who dealt with our outages so not that only stuff. that yeah okay um so you know i we would have we'd be in the middle of an outage something would go wrong we'd hop on a call help out where we could and you know he are he, your devs on call for yeah yeah so, so that is 100 shift left yeah, everybody's on call. We have, you know, we've, we've fully embraced shift left, you know, local dev environments in order to make sure that we can test as early in the process as possible. Um, Chicken wing. <laughs> Give it to me. So, and I'll call him out. His, his name is Brad Smith. Um, Brad Smith. I've seen him in, during an outage, he will, you know, there will be a sense of urgency, but he will slow down just enough to make sure that he's explaining what he's doing, why he's doing it, and how he's doing to anybody who's on the call, so that way it, it turns into just, you know, where he could go heads down, put his headphones in, and just, you know, work his way through the problem. He makes sure that everybody knows what's going on and why, so yeah, that way it's a teachable moment, you know. He, he he embraces the concept of teaching a man to fish. And I, uh, you know, as, a, as an engineer and as a, as a, I'd like to think an engineering leader, he's somebody that I really admire in the way that he approaches a lot of this. And approaches kind of the the career itself. All right, so we've been talking about culture, which is kind of like soft skills, a cuss word, but it's real. Like it's one of those. Like there's a lot of phrases I hate right now. AI ops, not a fan. But it's kind of there's something there. Soft skills, not a fan. Kind of something there too. And um, culture always been there the thing about culture is like you can't deny that culture is there if you say it's not there then that's your culture um, culture's turned into a bad word in a lot of ways because a lot because of companies it's always been associated with the hoodie yep a lot of companies uh, over cultivate it they uh, you know you you feel like you're working it's like a Stepford Wives situation you know a bunch <laughs> of bunch of clones bunch of robots and that's not really what real life is like you know, a, a company can have a culture, and not everybody has to be the same. You know, you can you can treat everybody as an individual, and and that culture can be in how you solve problems and how you grow, and how you you know how you grow yeah. grow the company. You I know, that's a good point. That's the beauty of startups. You know, at a startup, everybody's got a stake in it. You know, it's not just about you know clocking in, clocking out, and you're done. You know, it's it's a rare startup that doesn't give some options. You know what I mean? You. You, you have a stake in the growth of that company too, just like anybody else. And it's in everybody's best interest to, to figure out not just from a technical standpoint or a product standpoint how we grow it, but from a, a people standpoint. How do we grow it? How do we work best together? How do we architect our teams and our process so you know we walk out at the end of the day and feel like we really accomplished something and we feel good about the way we got there? Yeah. I'd say it doesn't have to be, so, like, it doesn't have to be startups though. I think there's other organizations. Because um, there's a lot of people who can't get gigs like you have in, in Boulder. You know, working, being a dev at Target is not a bad thing. And I'm going to start to be an advocate for things like that. There are a lot of people who don't want a gig like mine. Because I'm not, 
being a startup engineer is it's hard. Oh, you, it's really you hard. You wear a thousand <laughs> hats, and you know, work-life balance is not always easy to find. Uh, you know, we we make an effort to encourage it, but it's one of those things where you end up goddamn millennials and their work-life I balance. Know. You end up in you know. Uh, you end up more towards the, the leadership side of things and you do end up putting more hours. That work-life balance starts to kind of slip away in order to make sure that you can help sustain that for the, the, the engineers who are just coming up in their careers, you know? Well, in the cool You can't thing burn them out early. It's, that's, not, that's not a great way to really inspire confidence both internally in an organization and just as a career path, you know? This is the thing that I do it. I do it because I love it. Yeah. And... But the other thing is the open source community is so massive that it doesn't have to be like, if your need for tech is is that strong. I mean, the open like you recently committed to, um, well, besides your own GitHub clock, I still remember your own GitHub yeah, clock. Yeah, GitHub made me really fast for that one. <laughs> um, oh, you got shut down, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they blocked me. <laughs> Too many calls. Um, no, there was another project you recently committed to. It's it's been a lot. I got a I got an open source bucket list. So actually, <laughs> I have a list of projects that I I want to contribute to, just for my own personal like, you sense have. of you like have. You self success. Yeah, um, and that community is so good. And oh, you can. I love it. I like being able to contribute back to that stuff, and I like yeah. being able to contribute a solution that I really needed internally that other people found valuable, and we're able to get that into those projects as well, and then I know I benefited. You know my my peers in, in, in yeah. some ways too. Yeah, and that community um, is so strong. I mean, unfortunately, I would love at Fixate to find a way to pay people to contribute to open source projects. It's becoming more common. Like I like again, I point to Microsoft. They're really leaning into the that that side of the culture. But yeah. you know, they they have a lot of their engineers that focus solely on managing, maintaining open source projects. There's money. There's money behind. There's that. money. Behind <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, no, it's. I don't know, I've contributed to a few. Uh, Vagrant is the one that Vagrant. I contributed Maybe to it was relatively recently. Um, I contributed to Electron like two years ago. Okay. Um, and the, so there's this, I don't know if you use a Mac or if you're still on, yeah, if you've moved still away on. from it. Moved Mac away. <laughs> Um, a lot of engineers are moving away from you were the You actually was Zach who, who <laughs> at, at some point he's like, hey, um, Visual Studio Code is cool. And that made it all right for me. Visual like, Studio Code uh, is cool. awesome. It is my favorite editor. Uh, and uh, the fix that I contributed to Electron was specifically to enable Ooh. that fix for Visual Studio Code, cool. which is now out. So I don't know if you remember on the Apple when, when uh, or on the, the, the MacBooks or the Mac OS when Apple released the, um, they changed the way full screen works. And and they went from the like the pre-Lion full screen to the post-Lion full screen or mount okay. full screen. Oh, I didn't know, I know what you were talking about. And yep. it, it was a great solution for anybody that had a single monitor, but if you were using dual, dual monitors, then yes. managing the full right. screen was a nightmare. You had this whole space system that a lot of a lot of people didn't like it. And generally, it was the power users who had multiple monitors and were right. able to actually identify that this is a really bad user experience. Um, so there were a couple tools that, that implemented a uh, a pre-Lion full screen feature. Basically, it emulated the way full screen used to work. So you right. could have your full screen on one and still have your second screen without opening a new space. Um, I think iTerm is a terminal application. They they learned how to do it and. 
thankfully they were an open source project, so I was able to dig into uh, iTerm's source code and identify Shit. the, I mean, that's the, like the, the Arian Objective C of how they did it and the, the, the way they got to that solution. And uh, I contributed a that feature into the Electron project um, to support uh, pre-Lion simple full screen mode. Um, I was very proud of that because that was the first time I'd ever written any Objective-C, so it was definitely a big learning experience for yeah, me. Yeah, which is not easy. Yeah. It, 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 it's not easy I mean, to understand you know for some PHP, reason. So you still have, like, you don't have the Ruby baggage. You, I mean, PHP helps. PHP, I got a, I got a strong C background, right. and it, it wasn't terrible. Although, for some reason, the uh, syntax highlighting for Objective-C in every editor I've ever used is not easy. It's, huh. it's very, like, vanilla and hard to read. Um, but once... Once I got that merged into the Electron upstream, that was a, a huge like sense of accomplishment for me because it's like I finally, and I was able to kind of synthesize that because the the three different projects that I used all had open pull requests or open issues saying like, can we please? Can I get you guys another round? Yes. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so no, that's you know there you know there's there's hyperterm was one of them and a couple other electron projects that I, I used and and respected and it took about a year or two for them to catch up to the electron upstream you know that version um, but just like six months or so ago uh, Visual Studio Code finally caught up to that version and they implemented the simple full screen and that for me wow. was a huge day That's because awesome, man. I could start using simple full screen in Visual awesome. Studio Code get rid of that that title bar up at the top and the dock at the bottom I, I got an extra like 12 pixels when I use my editor it's amazing <laughs> and 12 pixels man okay so we're gonna close because this has been awesome and we're gonna, we could probably go on forever um, so I'm gonna give uh, tabs or spaces soft tabs what the hell is that it's where you hit the tab but it inserts spaces oh. So the actual value is spaces. The actual value is spaces. But from an editing standpoint. It's always tabs. It's always I mean, tabs. I, yeah. It has to be tabs. Mm -hmm. Who the hell wants to hit the space bar five Nobody times? Nobody hits the space bar five times. People <laughs> use soft tabs. Well, Zach, uh, this was awesome. I have a feeling that we're going to do a repeat of the, we'll, we'll do a V2 of this same episode here at Avery, because Avery is badass. And um, it's fun talking to Zach, even though I barely recognize him, because he's uh, not the Zach I knew seven years ago, but he's the grown-up Zach, and the grown-up Zach is better. Um, but thanks, thanks for doing the podcast. Cheers. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, yep. Fun.